0: Well, greetings, church. So good to be with you. Excited to be online and diving into some worship and then getting into God's word. My hope is that you'll choose to engage in this time of worship and really sing out praises to our King.
1: I was buried beneath my shame Could carry that kind away. It was not so till I met you. I was breathing, but not alive on my face. It was my dream, Till I met you Then what? You called my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness Into your glorious day you- we were dead and buried with him our sin was taking us down but then this happened i needed rescue my sin was heavy the chains break at the weight of your glory i needed shelter i was not orphan now you call me a citizen of heaven when i was broke, Let's learn this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes upon will keep us till the end.
2: Thank you, worship team, for leading us, and thank you so much for joining us online. We hope and pray that our time together is just a blessing for you each week. Well, as always, we as a staff, we love praying for you. We actually find it a privilege to be able to pray for you throughout the week, Uh, and you could text your confidential prayer requests uh, to 97000. You can text them now, tomorrow, throughout the week. Uh, We find it, again, uh, just an honor to be able to partner with you in prayer. So send those to 97,000. Well, we have a lot going on at Agora Bible Fellowship. And and if you're interested at all in finding out more information about our weekly happenings or our various ministries, our website is a fantastic place to start. And you can visit us anytime at agorabible.org. And lastly, our ongoing uh, ministry is, uh, is possible through your generous financial support, and uh, we would be so grateful if you would consider uh, preferably uh, making a donation. And you can do that on our website under the Give tab. Well, before we dive into God's Word, let us pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for this church. We thank you for our ministries, Lord, and we thank you that uh, you're a faithful God. And we just pray, Lord, that over the next few minutes, Lord, that uh, you just speak to us, that you uh, open our ears and our eyes in this passage, and that uh, you nudge us uh, to what you want us to get out of it, Lord. We thank you so much for who you are, and uh, to your name we pray, amen.
0: Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you so much, as I mentioned before, for being with us online. And as you know, we're continuing just our second week just in this study working through the book of Hebrews, just chapter by chapter, and we have that title, uh, Greater Than. It's kind of funny how often we're surrounded with debate over that question over who is the greatest. We have that expression of goat, greatest of all time. There's kind of the topic or discussion over who's the greatest really in every single sport, whether it's boxing, whether it's hockey, whether it's tennis, and, and, and a lot of these different discussions, there's golf, there's there's really no real conclusion. It just kind of goes back and forth. Really, the, the only one that I believe is decided is in basketball that Michael Jordan is for sure uh, the greatest player of all time. But that's uh, beside the point. What I want to point to is where we were at last week was really our, au- our uh, author of this book was crystal clear in letting us know really the big idea of this uh, message that's trickling into th- this one is that Jesus is the greatest, not just the greatest athlete or greatest person. He's the greatest of all existence. In fact, Last week, if you, if I were to recap the the message, he really did just a, a seal proof job of making that case. Basically, reminding us of some things that he's the creator of the world. He's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact rep- representation of his, of his divine nature. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the purifier from sin. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Really, it was a, a last week a, a drop the mic moment in that passage where you get the sense of really you know, no person can really argue with whether or not Jesus is the greatest. And so this week kind of turns a corner where he starts to move to answering the question if Jesus or because Jesus is the greatest, then what is our response to that? How are we supposed to live in that reality? How do we exist knowing that? How do we respond? Let me just pray before we dive into this section of uh, scripture that points more towards our response. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance, as usual, to come together online and be in your word. And what a gift that we're in a day and age where that's possible, where we can study scripture together, where we can point to things that you've said to us, about us, and God, that this, this time in, in your word might be something relevant for us, that you'd uh, poke us, that you'd prod us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at. We invite you now to move in this time. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start just here in chapter two of Hebrews, and always easier if we're reading that together. We will flash the different passages on uh, the screen there, but chapter two, verse one starts with this. It says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, you hear this anytime you're in scripture, they always point out the word therefore. A lot of times it starts the sentence here. It's right in the center. And what that word does is it connects chapter one to chapter two, because basically what it's saying is because of what we know of Jesus, we need to pay pay careful attention to what we've heard. We need to pay careful attention. I like how Tim Keller explains the literal meaning of careful attention in scripture is this idea of ferociously obsessed with something, where it's it's taken over every part of who you are, that you're obsessed with knowing Jesus Christ, knowing about Him, knowing what He said, and knowing uh, who He is. It's really, if you think about it, the very first command that we're seeing here in the book of Hebrews that we're supposed to pay careful attention. If you think about what sets apart believers from non-believers, really the the main or the primary thing has to do with our regard to Jesus as supremely valuable. What sets us apart as somebody that's following Jesus is we elevate him. We think he's worthy of our attention, of our affection, of our our thought process. And that's what the author is charging us, that we pay careful attention to what we've heard, what we know about Jesus Christ. The The alternative we see there. If you don't pay careful attention, it says, so that we do not Drift away. Drift away, the idea of something drifting is really the idea that we see a a nautical term where a a ship doesn't have an anchor down and it, it gradually, slowly drifts away. By definition, drifting is the idea of something being slow, silent, and subtle. That's basically the the tug of our world, world. if you think about it, where we elevate as a Christ follower, Jesus has the utmost importance in our life. Somebody that doesn't follow Jesus does not. So we're in a current, we're in a tide that's heading the exact opposite direction. We're surrounded by a world that doesn't really think Jesus is that big of a deal. That's why he's saying to stay focused. Otherwise, the warning is is that one will drift. And here's the thing about drifting is you don't have to do anything in order to drift. In fact, it's kind of what happens naturally. It's not about necessarily rejecting the faith, but it's about neglecting the faith. Do you follow the difference there? Not rejecting Jesus, but just neglecting that relationship. So why do we tend to drift? I read this week in my study, I like this statement. It says one of the reasons we drift is we lose resistance to the compelling force. We lose resistance to the compelling force. You think about that concept if you were in the water that had a current and you're swimming against it, is anytime you'd stop resistance to that force, what happens? You start to automatically drift. It's just a natural thing. And the same idea in our cultural tide is if you stop resistance, if you just do the exact same thing as everybody that you're surrounded with, guess what happens? You will drift along with the rest of them. Just the same idea. You lose resistance to the compelling force. If we do everything the same, think about a, a typical day. If you wake up, you have your morning coffee, maybe get a little exercise in, you have your commute to work, go to work, you have a couple meetings, you have your lunch break, a little more work in the afternoon, you have your commute home, you get home, it's a Netflix and and hangout night, and then going to bed, and it just starts this cycle over and over. If you're just going the same direction as the tide, man, you will drift, There will be a loss of connection with the Lord. There will be a drifting of intentionality in that relationship. So why do we drift? One is we lose resistance. The second thing that we do is we lose sight of a fixed reference point. I don't know if you've ever done this before. If you've been down at Zuma Beach and you set your chairs up on the beach and then you go in the water And when you're out in the water, you start looking at the shore and looking at the the point of where your chairs were at. And you're like, wait a second, I thought the chairs were straight in from me. And you've found yourself like a, I've come out of the water before at Zuma, where you're like two or three blocks down from where your chairs are at. And you're convinced somebody must have moved your chairs, but that's not what happened. The, The exact opposite, the chairs stayed the same, but you gradually slowly, subtly moved your way down from the current. So we lose sight of a fixed reference point. So often in the life of a believer, that fixed reference point is is something constant, like something like the body of Christ. One of God's designs for the body of Christ is that we would be that constant, that so much of what's happened in the last couple years with patterns getting out of place of people's uh, consistent worship and being together. Man, I'll tell you what, if you're not careful, if you don't have that North Star, if you don't have that thing that you're coming back to, think about so much of what happens in church the opportunity to to worship together with fellow believers the opportunity to have people that are involved in your life and the closer you the more you dive in to have people that are holding you accountable that are asking you tough questions that are encouraging you when you're struggling that are coming along you when alongside of you when you're sick all of the the different things that God intended for the the body of Christ if you're not careful You can drift if you don't have those things in place. I'll tell you what, one of the things that I've noticed in life with drifting is it seems to also be contagious to those around you. Unfortunately, often the patterns that are in place for parents ripple into their kids as well. It's much easier, I know, to coast and get in some habits and patterns of not really doing anything to invest in that relationship with the Lord, and that can be passed on, unfortunately, to our kids. All of a sudden, we don't realize it, and our kids come home one day, and all of a sudden, we realize, man, they have completely different views about the world. They've been, man, where did they get these crazy ideas? And you realize that, wait a second, I shouldn't be shocked by that, Because there hasn't been a pattern of being staying connected to the Lord, staying connected to community, staying connected to people that are building them up, a a, a faith community. So, For us to be cautious and careful, because especially thinking about uh, as parents, if you just successfully raise your kids to to go off and live a good life, or they got good grades, they have a good education, they're going to be happy. And if you never modeled what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, guess what route they're going to take. They're going to follow your example of drifting. So what do we do to avoid the drift. We see it here in the text. We also see it elsewhere in Hebrews. Hebrews 6.19 talks about our soul being anchored to Christ. And he's an anchor for our soul. I love that picture of being a constant. He's the one thing that we need to figure out. What does it look like in my life to stay connected to the vine? How do I stay connected to him as an anchor? I don't know, just some practical things for for me in my week. I'll share a few things that are kind of normal parts of my routine. I would hope that they'd become parts of your routine. One is obvious with uh, the job that I have is consistently spending time in God's word, making sure that you're carving that out, that there's a set apart time where you're staying connected, listening to what he has to say, interacting with him through the text, through his word, figuring that out as a pattern in your life. Prayer life is also a big deal and trying to be creative with that. I really appreciate my wife's uh, been doing something just on the home front. Uh, we started at dinner time where we have these these little note cards with different topics that are in a jar, and Adrian has each of our kids draw from that jar a a different topic, and we spend a little time before eating dinner, or actually sometimes even as we're eating dinner, praying to God about these different topics, whether it's school, whether it's friends that don't know Jesus Christ, whether uh, it's a, a wide range of topics, whether it's attitudes, and so figuring out what does prayer look like in your life. I would also say what you're filling your mind with. I, on a consistent basis, watch a, a number of different sermons from different uh, preachers in the course of the week. I try to pick some different media. Uh, just last night, my wife and I watched a couple episodes of that series called The Chosen, filling your mind with things that are going to edify, they are going to build you up. Entertainment is obviously a huge choice with that. Also filling your mind with what type of music you're going to listen to. Are you going to be listening to something that's that's building you up and pointing you towards worshiping our Lord? Obviously, there's some great worship music options out there. Walking, figuring out times where you can walk and be with the Lord. I'm a big fan of being out in God's creation. Some of you, maybe that's the way that you'd connect with God best, is being outside, being in his, in his creation. But my point is this, making sure you're figuring out patterns of how you stay connected to the vine. It's not going to just happen on its own. It's not like you're going to stumble in, man, I have this great relationship with the Lord. I don't know how that happened. It's not something that's going to happen by accident. The natural thing, as we're told even in this verse verse, is the natural thing is for us to drift. Continue in verse two. So this idea, because Jesus is the greatest, we must avoid drift Because Jesus is the greatest, we cannot ignore his salvation. Listen to verse 2. It says, For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So it starts and it refers to in the text there it can be a little bit confusing, but actually if you break it down it's really not that bad. It first talks about a message spoken by angels being binding. So what is this message that was spoke by angels? Most theologians agree that this would be talking about the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, basically the Ten Commandments. It was written by the finger of God, but delivered by messengers. In Acts 7.53, you might remember Stephen as he was being stoned. He refers to the law that was put into effect by angels. So we don't know exactly what their role was in this process, but it's pointed to a number of different places in scripture. But basically the idea is this, if we take the word, if we're referring to it as the law that was delivered by angels seriously, why wouldn't we take seriously the word delivered by the exalted son of God? if the words of the angels, if the Ten Commandments were binding, if those were things that were held accountable to, if those were things that uh, there was consequences for disobedience for, how then, look what he says, how then shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? In other words, if you think you are held accountable to the law, think about if you were to ignore The message of salvation. What is the message of salvation? That Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life, died on a cruel Roman cross as a payment for our sins, rose again on the third day, providing the payment for our sins and potential restoration with God if we come to him by faith. That's the message. That's what he's saying. Man, how do we get to skip out on that? You will not escape When he says it, he says, how shall we escape? It's basically, in other words, we will not escape. We will not escape. Unfortunately, I believe that hell will be full of people that never actively opposed Jesus, but simply neglected or ignored the gospel the idea of ignoring this. This person has, has heard about Jesus Christ. He's seen the testimony of different people that have walked with them. He's read, they've read scripture. They've heard the accounts, but they've just chosen to just move on, just go on with their life without ever bending a knee and choosing to follow them with their life. That's what he's pointing to, man. That person is really, if you think about it, a tragic group of person. They, a tragic group of people. They know the facts that have been confirmed by witnesses, but they've not really done anything with it. What I find is so awesome, is so often in passages just like this. It's really, if you think about it, it's really an act of kindness that it's pointing to the danger of ignoring the gospel cuz really every single time we're reminded of it what is it it's an invitation for us to bend a knee to call out to him even in the moment as i'm speaking now this is the one time in the message that i'll give you full permission to stop listening to what i have to say and actually start talking to jesus God, I've blown it. I've fallen short of your perfect standard. I accept your free gift. I want to live my life with you now as the Lord and leader. Those those words could redirect your eternity. What I like the point that he's making here is he's saying the the, the idea is, is how would somebody, this salvation, which was first announced to the Lord, says, how shall we escape or ignore that? The, 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 the insanity of that idea of ignoring such a beautiful thing that's offered to us. Really, if you think about the God that we're talking about, the humility that was on display. After mankind rejected him and his leadership in the garden and said, no thanks, we're going to go our own way. But then in his kindness, making the choice to lower himself to come down, to be amongst us, to live a perfect life as an example for us, and then allowing us to put him on a cross, to murder him for crimes he didn't commit, and then rising again on the third day, providing opportunity for us to be restored to relationship with him. What an unbelievable kind of love. And we spend so much of our life trying to pursue and find love. But where would we ever find a love greater than that? We'll continue. So the suggestion of the author, don't ignore his salvation. Don't ignore such a miraculous gift. And we'll continue in verse 5. It says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you, can, that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now this is an interesting thing because at first you're like, what are we doing? What are we talking about with angels? He's briefly revisiting the topic of angels and their role. What is he actually saying about angels? Look at what he's saying about the angels. He's saying that God never intended to give angels rule over the world to come. That was always intended to be for those who are being saved. Angels... Will someday be servants, not rulers. So their present superiority to man is only temporary. It's only temporary. In the world that is to come, that it describes there, and this is the one uh, that we're currently in, as I've mentioned, seems to be winding down. In the world to come, it's always been God's plan for man to one day reign and rule over the universe where someone, this idea is, is mind-boggling to us, but it's the reality. If you revisit Genesis 1 and 2, you start to see what God's intent was for mankind to reign and rule over this planet. That's always been his design. But for us, somewhere along the way, we've kind of lost that idea of man's destiny and God's plan for mankind. We've lost the idea because we start to ask this question, where in the, why in the world would God be so considerate of me? Look what he says there. There's a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you're care for him. This is found in Psalm chapter eight, where the psalmist asks the question that really all of us at some point in our life have probably wrestled with. I know I have this question of, Who am I that the God of the universe is actually interested in me? That he cares about me? That he's concerned about the things that I'm concerned about? That he has good intentions for me? That he has a plan for me to rule and reign with him someday? Who in the world am I? Remember this last spring, I was on a uh, a retreat with a group of pastors. We're actually up in in upper uh, Minnesota, and I remember one evening laying on this uh, bed thing that they had on the top of this houseboat. We were out fishing, just laying up and lay, laying up on this thing and staring up at the sky. It was unbelievable night. I know most of you at some point have seen a really starlit night, but this was uh, just unbelievable to me. And I remember looking up and seeing the expanse of the universe and really asking that same question, God, what is it that makes you interested in little old me? Well, here's the reality that we learn in scripture, which is the exact opposite of what the world wants to tell you. The world wants to tell you, you're not that big, big of a deal. You're expendable. You're, you're disposable. You're just a, a blob of cells, one might say as a baby, but that's the opposite of what God's word actually teaches. What God's word tells us is that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that you're an image bearer, of Jesus Christ, that you're a a reflection of him. Now, even though that reflection of him is often tainted by sin, it doesn't change the fact of who you are and how you're seen in Christ. I'm a big car fan. I've talked about that often. And one of the things that you uh, understand in car world is these guys that love vintage cars are constantly looking for some kind of a, a random, they call it a barn find. Basically an old vintage car that's just been sitting in a barn and it's just there. And at first you go in this barn and you see this car that's just covered with dust and doesn't look that impressive. It's So fun to watch some of these accounts of these guys that find these cars and they gradually just piece by piece restore it and bring it back to its original design, its original intent. And this thing is just a masterpiece I think that's a picture of what God sees in us, that he designed us and created us to reign and rule with him. Sometimes I don't even know what to do with that reality. Revelations 3.21 tells us that those who are in Christ, those who persevere to the end, will someday reign and rule with him and actually sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. What do you do with that? Daniel 7.18 and 27 promises the same thing. Sometimes when I read those texts and give thought to that, my brain doesn't even know how to process that. But what it tells you is, I'll tell you what, we have a God that loves us, designed us, cares about us, and has unbelievable plans for those of us who are in him. It's an awesome reality. So why should we be concerned with him being the greatest? Because it's, it's good to be on Team Jesus Continue with the last two verses, we'll wrap up here, verse second half of verse eight. It says, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, not now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what's he saying here? It says, yet at this present, present, we do not see everything subject to them. In the last verse, it talked about everything being subject underneath mankind, under, underneath his reign and rule. But the author is making note that when you look around the world, it necess- doesn't necessarily seem like this is that we're reigning and ruling currently. The world, in fact, seems just the opposite. It seems like quite a mess. Everything here seems to come with some degree of resistance. The author recognizes, though, what sin, the fall, the curse, what effect that has happened. Something's gone terribly wrong. It's now a twisted planet marked with violence, dishonesty, fear, greed, power grabs, all of the above. It's all that barn find, that tainted image of God's initial design. But here's the truth of the matter. The idea of reigning and ruling with Jesus Christ, the idea of everything being under the submission of mankind, isn't as dark of an idea as we might think. At first we hear that idea and we kind of twitch because we've seen so much abuse of leadership in our lives. So we hear that idea that we're designed and created to reign and rule and someday that's going to happen but what we leave out of the equation, what we leave out of the equation, as my friend John describes it, my friend describes, we leave out the benevolent dictator, the one that's perfectly in control, the one that's perfectly uh, able to handle leadership, that doesn't uh, misuse his, his power and his authority, the one that wants to eventually hand that over to us because he made it possible. I titled this that he restored our destiny. His design for us was to one day reign and rule. And the only way that was possible is he set the pace for us. Look again at what it says. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. At at one point, Jesus, as we know, came down, was lowered. There's actually a a, a term for that, kenosis, where he shed some of his divine nature and attributes by being able to come down as a baby and be amongst us. He shed that for a temporary season, but then he modeled the same thing that's to come for us, even though now we're in in a state that's not a great spot someday we're going to be restored and brought back to an elevated position of his initial intent. How is that possible? We see it right there in the text. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, man's destiny was restricted by sin, but it's recovered by Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I've been crucified with Christ. You see, at the moment that I put my trust in Jesus and identify with him, I was raised up with him. I'm now a king awaiting the new kingdom. I'm a king now awaiting the new kingdom. I like how John MacArthur puts it. I'm a, a man who's given a crown again a man who's given a crown again. You see, he's restored our destiny. We were designed to one day reign and rule. And the only way that it was possible is the old self had to be put to death and brought back to life where we're now wrapped in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to Jesus Christ being the greatest? We see it beautifully described here. One, we have to resist drifting how do we resist drifting? We resist drifting by staying connected to the anchor, looking for ways to connect with him throughout our day, through our week, making him a a passion and priority. It's not something you're going to stumble on. It does take intentionality, but it's not a terrible job description if you actually think what we're being asked to do, staying connected to the Lord himself staying focused on our salvation, the salvation that's only provided because of his finished work on the cross. And knowing, and this is the important part, that you're valued, that you're elevated to the the place where he's saying someday for those who stay connected to him, for the person that is truly saved, we will one day reign and rule with him. Our destiny, which is described in Genesis, will finally be restored. I'll tell you what, these passages are pretty heavy with a lot of content, but if you actually stop and wrestle through what's being said here, the reality of who we are, our identity in Jesus Christ, and where we're headed is, man, it's shocking. It's mind-blowing. Who am I that he would be mindful of me? But he is. He is mindful of me. He does care about me. He does have plans for me. He does have plans for you. Those who are in Christ, don't take his salvation lightly. Lean into it, call out to him. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and so much truth that's packed into it. And I know personally, when I read through some of this and it starts talking about everything being put under the footstool of man at some point, there's kind of a a part that my brain can't even wrap around it. But the idea is this, is that you've chosen us. You've chosen to include us. You've chosen to pursue us. God, my hope and my prayer is that we would live in that identity and the reality of who you say we are, not what the world does. God, I pray for us even going into the week that we'd make choices to stay connected to you as the one constant anchor in our life. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: The well, creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry, then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear Christ be magnified. Were the
0: church family. Well, again, thanks for being with us online as usual. Anyway, during the week that we can serve you, always feel the freedom to reach out to us. And if you are looking to take some steps towards reconnecting and community, whether it's in Bible study, whether it's in church services, there's so many different opportunities for that. Uh, You can get on our website and check out some of those uh, or reach out to the church office. God bless you. Have an amazing week.